0: No, no, no. Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack. I am the founder and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver Trulson and i will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses tax trusts estates legal technology law firm leadership and well-being first i want to thank our sponsors interactive legal carson private client and the foster group here's a message from interactive legal
2: And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time convenient for you. So please go to InteractiveLegal.com and click on Request a Demo.
1: On today's episode, my guest is Jonathan Blotmacher. Jonathan requires no introduction. He is well known for being one of the most creative trust and estate lawyers in the country. He also is well-respected for the use of technology. I remember attending Heckerling early in my career and listening to Jonathan and hoping that one day I might know as much as he would. Jonathan is Principal at Pioneer Wealth Partners, Editor-in-Chief at Interactive Legal, and Director of Estate Planning at Peak Trust Company. Jonathan, I appreciate you being here today.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me, Mary.
1: So one of our... Recent new regulations, little joyous news from the IRS, is that they decided to issue proposed regulations that provide an exception to the anti-clawback rules regarding the gift and estate tax. So as a starting point, can you just explain to our listeners what a clawback is in the context of the gift tax exemption?
2: Yes, I'll try to, Mary, but I'd like to start with something really fundamental. Up until 1977, we had separate estate and gift tax systems in the United States. In fact, the gift tax rates were exactly three quarters of the estate tax rate. There was a separate exemption. It was a true exemption for estate tax purposes of $60,000 and a separate gift tax exemption of $30,000. But in the Tax Reform Act of 1976, Congress basically unified the estate and gift tax systems. And one of the things it did is provide a single basic exemption. It's actually a credit against tax, but you can think of it as an exemption. And originally, it was only $175,000. And of course, today, it's over $12 million. But let me go back then to say what happened. Anyway, they put in a provision that said any taxable gift you made during your lifetime, unless it was pulled back into your gross estate for some reason, like you'd retained an income interest in the property. That gift you made, that taxable gift would come back as what was known as an adjusted taxable gift and would be added to your taxable estate. And then the unified rates which had been adopted would be applied against that sum and then you would subtract out the gift tax paid or payable on the adjusted taxable gift. So basically lifetime gifts, except for appreciation or income that occurred after you made the transfer really didn't reduce your overall taxation because the gifts were added in order to determine the estate tax rate. Now, a few things then began to happen. Well, what would happen if the rates went down as they did? what kind of credit would you get for the gift tax you paid on your adjusted taxable gift? Well, I said, you'll use the rates in effect at the time that the person dies, not at the time the gift was made. Now that meant, you know, maybe it wasn't as good as a deal as it could have been. But then something extraordinary happened. They began to increase the amount of the exemption, but only temporarily they did that back in the 19 uh, t- in the 2000s and then we thought that the exemption which had grown to 5 million dollars was going to go back down to a million bucks and the way it appeared is if you didn't use the entire $5 million, you were going to lose it. You couldn't preserve any portion of that unless you'd made a gift, and the gift had to be of the entire $5 million. You couldn't say, well, they're going to reduce it to $1 million, so I'll make a gift of four. No, Nope. The IRS said, if you use exemption during lifetime, that will be first applied against your state when you die. Well, lo and behold, even though we had a Democratic administration with Barack Obama, he agreed with John Boehner, the head of the House, and Mitch McConnell, the head of the Senate, that they would preserve the $5 million exemption. So it didn't happen. Everybody who was wealthy like you, Mary, was extremely pleased with that. Well, then along came Donald Trump, and we had the Tax cuts and jobs act of 2017, where they increased it not from five million, but to $10 million. But because of something called the bird rule that's in the Senate, the procedural rule, that increase had to go away in 2026. So the law today provides for a $10 million exemption, which is adjusted for inflation. So today it's $12,060,000, but it's going to be cut in half beginning in 2026. And also, there have been many, many proposals over the past couple of years to reduce it right away. Some would reduce it down to 3.5 million. So people again thought about, how can I preserve that exemption? And so people came up with some very clever ways, and I think we'll get that into that, Mary, where people tried to say, well, I'll use the exemption but I'll still be able to benefit or control the disposition of the property I've given away. So it's kind of like almost a non-gift. Well, the Internal Revenue Service and the Treasury have now issued proposed regulations saying, nope, we're gonna take the exemption that you used back when you die, if you die after the exemption has been reduced, if you have not really fully parted with the property. And those are called, you know, the clawback rules. They claw back the exemption that was used during lifetime unless you've basically given up all interest and control. But you have to get into the details to know what those special rules and exceptions are.
1: So can you just give us an example of what that looks like? So right now, if we give away 12 million bucks in 2022... And I put it in an irrevocable trust with no special interest, I have no interest, whatever, in that, I've probably given it away. And then I die in 2026, the exemption 6 million something. They're not going to throw that back into my estate. Is that right?
2: That's correct. When you compute your estate tax, again, that adjusted taxable gift of 12 million you made will be pulled back in for purposes of calculation, but you'll get the benefit of the $12 million exemption you used during your lifetime, which is fair. So that's just fine and dandy. So if you take 12 million and you give it to one of your children, or you create a trust for your family, you don't retain any strings or anything, that's okay. One of the interesting questions, Mary, is, well, what if you create the trust for the benefit of your spouse? Well, if you do it as a marital deduction trust, you won't have used exemption because the property will have qualified for the marital deduction. But let's suppose you say, no, I'm gonna create one of these fancy things called a spousal lifetime access trust, or a SLAT as it's commonly known in the trade, where, I put it into trust for my wife or my wife and my kids, or you put it in trust for your husband and your kids and grandkids, Mary, and you don't have any direct interest, but through your spouse or me through my spouse has it. And in fact, we could arm either spouse with a power to get the property back. In fact, in some states like Florida, you can actually set it up, make a gift, and yet be, get the property back. Well, what the service did is they said, it looks like under these proposed regulations, which by the way, do not have the force of law, they were only proposed and they'll probably be proposed before become final before the end of the year. They said, well, all right, if you use it and even though your spouse could benefit and your mother and your cat and your kids and your dog all could benefit, we're not going to cause you to lose that exemption you lose use during your lifetime. So that's what they've done. Now let me give you an example, Mary, of something they did. A former colleague of mine, Austin Bramwell, wrote an article when we thought that the exemption was going to drop from 5 million down to a million, said, hey, why don't you make a gift by making a promise? Well, the law says if you make a gift or a promise, which is not legally enforceable, it's not a gift. So, Mary, if I say, right now, I say, Mary, I'm going to give you $10 million. You say, that's great, Jonathan. Thank you. You give me a big hug and kiss. But guess what? That's not enforceable because no consideration came back from you. However, in one state in Pennsylvania, if you put it in writing and you say, I really mean it, and I say in writing, Mary, I promise to give you $10 million, that is legally enforceable. And in fact, in all states, you can probably do it. If for example, I say, Mary, I'm gonna give you 10 million if you promise next week to come over and cook my dinner. Now, even though you are an outstanding cook, Mary, your agreement to cook a meal for me is not worth $12 million. So the excess of the value above your cooking a meal for me to 12 million is a gift. And that's a gift today. But I won't have parted with the property because even I go to Pennsylvania and I say, Mary, I'm gonna give you $12 million by the time I die. And you say, well, gee, that's great. It's in Pennsylvania, it's enforceable, but I keep the property. And indeed, there's a very important revenue ruling, 84-25, which says you can do that. And it says, by the way, the gift you made of that $12 million or whatever it was, pursuant to Pennsylvania law, that doesn't count as an adjusted taxable gift. Why? Because the IRS said well, you never parted with any property. Like those assets are still going to be in your estate and to avoid a double counting, we're going to not make you count that adjusted taxable gift you made by your enforceable promise to make the transfer at a later time into your estate tax calculation. And that's an example that they give in these proposed regulations where you make an enforceable gift to deliver property or money at a later time. And they said, if you do that, we're going to take back the deemed exemption you use because you really didn't part with any property. So that's just one example of what they had. The other cases, are where you retain some sort of interest in the property which would cause the assets to be included back in your estate, essentially under section 2036, the retained life rule or a power to control the beneficial enjoyment and the power to control the beneficial enjoyment also triggers inclusion of those assets in your estate under section 2038. Now, 2035 is also listed because 2035 says, hey, if you have an interest that would cause inclusion under 2036 or 2038 and you get rid of it, you get give it away, for example, within three years of your death, we will nonetheless include the property in your estate. So what they've done is if you make a transfer that otherwise would be in your estate under 2036 and 2038, then subject to two potential exceptions, it means that they're going to claw back the exemption that you used if you die after the exemption has gone down. Now, technically, 2037 is, is also mentioned, and that's a reversionary rule that almost never comes up. And they also mention 2042, which is the taxation of life insurance proceeds that were paid on the life of the decedent. And the rule says, if I own a policy or I control the benefits of it, called incidents of ownership, at my death, the proceeds are taxed as part of my gross estate. But if I give the policy or the incidence of ownership away within three years of my death, section 2035 says we're still gonna tax those proceeds when you die. So these proposed regulations have 2035 under that three-year rule, 2036, the retention of an income interest or power to control beneficial enjoyment, 2038, which is also control of beneficial enjoyment, 2037, which is this rarely arising reversionary rule, or 2042, dealing with life insurance proceeds paid upon the death of the decedent. Now, let me give you another example, Mary, where this could come up. Now, I know you represent a lot of people, and for some reason I will never understand, Mary, your clients don't wanna pay estate tax. So they say, how can I give lots of property away without having to pay estate tax? And you say, well, I know a secret provision of the tax law that deals with grantor retained annuity trust or GRATs. So you can go ahead, Mary, and have your clients put a lot of money into a trust retain the right to an annuity for a period of years and you will not have to treat that as a gift because you've retained the interest and you've done it in the way that is described under section 2702. In fact, it's in Mary in regulation 25.2702-3. So you need to be familiar with that, but you can put hundred million in a trust and retain the right to an annuity which has a value of almost hundred million and only that little tiny differential is a gift. So, but if you die, section 2036 regulations say, it's gonna come back into your estate, so you'd be caught there. But that brings up another exception. When you created this great big grat, which you hope will appreciate significantly in value, so you'll get a lot of value out of your estate, you, you also said, well, you know, Uh, I haven't made a very big gift, why do they worry about it? Well, they're still worried about it, but they said, look, if you have a taxable portion of the transfer that's 5% or less, so in my example, Mary, where you had your client put 100 million into this grant, if the interest given away, the gift portion, Is 5% or less, in other words, 5 million or less in that example, then they are not going to bring it back into your uh, tax estate by taking away the exemption you use. But again, notice, Mary, you wouldn't have used a $12 million exemption. Even though you gave $100 million, you've only made a gift of 5 million. And most people drive that remainder, the taxable portion of the transfer down to an even smaller number, like maybe $10,000. Well, the service said we won't bother about that. So that's one of the exceptions they have. So um, if if you make a transfer, even though you've retained like an income interest, then we're not going to take back the exemption provided that the use of the exemption, basically the taxable portion of the transfer, is 5% or less of the total amount transferred.
1: So now, Jonathan, we've been talking about the exceptions, and there's an 18-month rule. Can you explain that to me?
2: Yes. Well, everybody knows that there's a transfer within three years of death rule. If you retain an interest under Section 2036, for example, the right to income, and you die with that right, it's going to be includable in your estate. If you give it up within 18 months, in fact, if you give it up within three years of your death, it still in effect comes back into your estate, but no longer under Section 2036, but under Section 2035. These regulations kind of compromise it by saying if you lose your interest Within more than 18 months before you die, we won't claw back. So let's suppose I create a trust and I retain, you know, the, the right to control the beneficial enjoyment of the property. That would trigger 2036 A2 and section 2038. But let's suppose the trustee has the power to cut off my right to conclude to control that beneficial enjoyment. If the trustee does that more than 18 months prior to my death, then I'm not going to have the clawback work and I'll be able to use the exemption at my death that I used during my lifetime. It's not entirely clear if you give it up what will happen because if you give it up, you're going to be caught by the transfer within three, death, uh, three years of death rule of Section 2035. and But if you do that more than 18 months before you die, it's unclear what the co- consequences are. And we have asked the Treasury for some guidance about this. Where again, you are giving it up more than 18 months prior to your death, but still 2035 will apply because it was within three years of your death. And again, that's different where someone else cuts it off. 2035 only applies where you voluntarily basically give it up, not where it's taken away from you. So that's an exception to the exception, Mary.
1: Okay, that's what I thought we were getting to. So how is portability affected by the anti-clawback regulations?
2: Well, that's very interesting. Portability, of course, is the ability of a surviving spouse not to use his or her estate tax exemption at death but to have it ported or transferred over to the surviving spouse so that he or she can use it later at at death. Now, there's some good news about portability. If my wife dies and I inherit her $12 million exemption, I can use it for my lifetime gifts and I can use it when I die. One little point, however, is if I remarry and my new spouse also dies before me, I don't get to use my spouse's exemption. I only get to use whatever I inherit from my new wife, who also predeceased me. And it may be that my new wife will go ahead and want to use her exemption for his or her own descendants rather than leave it to me so I can use it with respect to my descendants. But the way this works is, although the lifetime exemption you lose can be clawed back, you know, under these new uh, exceptions to the anti clawback rule, that will not happen with respect to the inherited exemption that you get for your spouse, the so-called deceased spouse's unused exemption or to sue. That does not go away. And when the exemption is reduced as it may well be in 2026, you still get to use the full exemption. So my wife dies today. I inherit her $12 million exemption. I die in 2028. Any exemption of my own I've used during my lifetime would be clawed back, but any desu that I got from my wife has not be, will not be taken away under these anti-clawback rules.
1: We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client.
0: Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory service is offered through CWMLLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.
1: Okay, let's continue our episode. So as practitioners go forward with, we have these regs that say in these certain situations, we are going to include these gifts in your state because you didn't really give them away. Can you give us some examples of what practitioners should be concerned about?
2: Well, again, they don't bring it back into your estate. They're really, but in a sense, you know, in a sense, Mary, that's what they're doing. But they're just saying, we're just not going to give you the benefit of the exemption used rather than bring the property back into your estate. That could be quite different. For example, if the property had gone way up in value, you still would have gone very far, even though you were not able to use the exemption. If you die when the exemption has been reduced and you fall under one of these rules.
1: Okay. So that's a great point. So let's just clarify that example. So let's say that I have a client make a gift of $12 million this year. They then die in 2026. The value of this asset is worth 25 million now, but it's a 2036 issue. What happens in 2026?
2: Well, if your client had retained, for example, an interest described in Section 2036, which in some states can be merely the eligibility to receive distributions from the trust. Most states provide that if you create a trust, your creditors can attach it to the extent that the trustee could give you distributions from the trust. So you create a trust and you say, I've got an independent trustee. The trustee doesn't have to. He could give it to my husband, to my kids, to my cat. Or if the trustee wants with me and there's no deal, yet under the law of most states, the mere eligibility to receive a distribution from the trustee means your creditors can attach it. And under Revenue Ruling 77-378 and a case called Outwin, O-U-T-W-I-N, decided by the tax court, that will mean that that trust is also includable in your estate. And that means that, yes, the trust is going to be includable in your estate, so you didn't advance it. The whole $25 million now would come in because you retained that interest, and you would have lost the benefit of using the exemption during your lifetime. On the other hand, if, for example, you make a transfer where you have only some control, or the property did not increase in value, then you may get the benefit of some increase in value, even if they take the exemption back. What practitioners have to be concerned about is there's a catch-all, and it gives those examples of 2036, 2038, and also the gift by promise, but they say it will also apply to other cases as well. And one of the things that's been speculated is would they go so far as to say if I created a trust for my spouse, even though there may not be any deal, and even though I don't have access to it, basically through my wife, I can get it. And the the answer is, well, it doesn't appear so, but remember, these are only proposed regs. They're not final. However, under the Administrative Procedure Act, When the government wants to make a regulation even harsher, it has to repropose at least that part of the regulation. So if after getting comments and looking around what people are discussing, the Treasury says, hey, we can't let Jonathan create a spousal lifetime access trust for his wife because we know through her he'll benefit from it. So when he dies, we're going to recapture the exemption that was used. If he dies after the exemption goes down. Well, if they want to do that, I I guess they have the power to do it. They have pretty broad authority under the code on dealing with this kind of stuff, but they would have to re-propose the regulations. And if they don't re-propose the regulations, that regulation might be invalid.
1: So what do you think a practitioner can do? Let's just go to something. Here's what you can do to clearly use the exemption.
2: Well, the thing is it's wealthy people like you, Mary, you just give away 12 million dollars to your kids, to a trust for your kids, and you don't have anything in it or today, but you're a husband in. And by the way, Mary, and I know this could happen because you're a very attractive woman, If you are presently unmarried or your husband dies or you divorce him because you've seen somebody who looks better, you can define the beneficiary in that trust, that spousal lifetime access trust, that SLAT, not as your current husband by name, but by the person to whom you're married at the time in question. Now, by the way, Mary, I once did that for a client. He came in and he said, Do you mean that if my son divorces his wife and he remarries a guy, that guy would come in? And I said, well, literally, that's what it said. Take it out. It has to be someone of the opposite sex. So that was it. But you can, in these trusts, which don't qualify for the marital deduction, you can define the spouse as the person to whom you're married at the time in question. And if it's a discretionary trust for the spouse, you don't have to worry about someone marrying you just to get access to the trust because you'll have a friendly trustee who's not going to do things that you wouldn't want done with the money in the trust.
1: So do you have some additional examples on what, strat- what, what strategies might sort of be in the gray area under
2: these proposed regs? Well, I think one that possibly could work and it basically gets you there is let's say I created trust for the benefit of uh, you know my family and I use my $12 million exemption. Now I've really parted with the property. I haven't retained the right to the property. I've actually transferred the property. Maybe it's publicly traded stock and we know what the value is or maybe it's some other asset we have to get an appraisal, but I dispose it all on a gift tax return. But then suppose a couple of years later, Mary, I come back and I say to the trustee, I'd like to buy those assets from the trust. And so I said, I'm willing to give you a note for the assets in that trust, so I re-get them. And that note will be due when I die. Well, there's one problem with that. It doesn't seem that the treasury allows you to make a note payable among family members upon someone's death, except in the context of split-dollar insurance loans. So you have to have a definite date, and it has to be something that would normally be repayable in the lender's lifetime. Now, here, the lender is really the trust, so how that rule would apply, I don't know. The other thing is, even though we know that you can make loans between family members using the AFR rate, so I could make a loan to my son for nine years and charge the midterm rate, and that loan won't be considered a gift. But can you do the same thing when you're dealing with a trust? Because these rules, which allow you to use the applicable federal rates on family notes, only apply basically in the employer-employee context and where the foregoing of interest would be in the nature of a gift. Well, when a trustee sells you something, and the trustee isn't, your be- isn't for your benefit, he's for the benefit, or it's for the benefit of someone else, then there's a question about whether or not you can use those rates. So that's something that's just not entirely clear, but that may be one way to do an, I'll call it an end run, uh, for lack of a better term, where you transfer the property, you file a gift tax return, and by the way, Mary, you know rather than going up exactly to the 12 million sixty thousand dollars I'd probably say mary let's make it 12 million one hundred thousand dollars and pay a little gift tax because uh, that really puts the irs on notice because lots of times they'll get returns and they say gee you know they valued it correctly there's no way to collect any additional money but I like to pay a little bit of gift tax just to kind of thing keep things on the up and up So that way you can do it, you can get the assets back. But again, you probably have to have it repaid at a definite period of time of up to 30 years, which is a very, very long time. And then the questions about, well, what rate do you pay? And again, I'm not sure that you can use these these low applicable federal rates. For one thing is the trustee has a fiduciary duty to benefit not you, the grantor of that trust, but the beneficiaries. And making you know, a loan to a third party at the AFR never happen in an arm's length transaction. You'd have to charge a market rate of interest. Now, if you do that, you wanna make sure that the trust is a grantor trust, one from which the income deductions and credits of the trust are attributed back to the grantor because under Revenue Ruling 85-13, from an income tax perspective, that trust doesn't exist. So even if we say today, say we decide to pay 7% interest, and we're gonna have that interest accrue, well normally under the original issue discount rules, that income would be currently taxable. And indeed, the I would be treated as though I transferred that to the trust each and every year. But it doesn't matter if it's a grantor trust because- With a grantor trust, I am deemed to be paying myself. So that's one of the things that practitioners will have to look at. This is not as easy as slipping off a greasy log. I mean, there's a real challenge here. Now, again, if you're super rich, you just make a gift of twelve thousand six hundred, uh, sixty thousand $60,000, or as it goes up, you do more and more and you can allocate your GST exemption to it as well. Very good deal. But if you're not super rich, let's say you don't think you can afford to give away that much money, then you wanna do some of these other things where you use the exemption Exemption, pay virtually no gift tax today, but not have to worry about the use of that exemption being clawed back if you die after the exemption goes down.
1: So where we're most likely to see an issue and for practitioners to really think are the clients say it's a couple and they have, you know, $30 million. And so we're trying to use the $12 million exemptions before it drops back but they maybe don't really want to give away complete and absolute control of 24 plus million. So we're trying to be creative about giving them ways to access the assets rather than giving them away in the entirety. If we have somebody with 200 million, we're going to clearly give away, use the exemption and probably not take any risks. So is that correct that it's more likely when we're thinking about the client in the 25 to 50 range that we're really looking at that?
2: Well, I think so, and it depends on whether they're single or married. But if you're dealing with a married couple, you might think, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and have the husband create a trust for the wife, and the wife create one for the husband or for the same sex couple, one for each spouse. But there's a doctrine in the law called reciprocal trusts. And Mary, that was made famous in a case in the Supreme Court called a state of grace. Now, Mary, I don't know if you're Catholic or not, but for your Catholic listeners, note that I said a state of grace. I didn't say state of grace. So this case, a state of grace... Mr. Grace created a trust for his wife and she creates an identical trust for him, giving each other income interest. And the court said, no, we're going to uncross those. So that the trust that Mrs. Grace created for her husband, he died first, would be treated as created for him and therefore it's includable in his estate under 20 to 36 because he retained an income interest in the trust he was deemed to have created. So if you're dealing with couples, you gotta do that. Now that brings up another thought that maybe you wanna consider, Mary, and it's something I don't think you've ever heard about because you would have been calling me every day saying, Jonathan, thank you for this. How come I didn't know about it before? And that isn't called a slat, it's called a spat a special power of appointment trust. So what I do is I create a trust for the benefit of my family, my spouse and my kids and grandkids and the cat and the dog. And it prohibits the trustee from ever voluntarily distributing any property to me. It can't be done. So we don't have to worry about being in a state or an argument being made that I walked through a state at one time where the eligibility to receive a distribution causes a estate tax inclusion, because it would be accessible by my creditors. And in fact, if anybody wants to look at it and it's an exciting read, take a look at the commentary to Section 505 of the Uniform Trust Code. And it clearly says that to the extent that the trustee could give property to the grantor, it is subject to the claims of the grantor's creditors. Now, there are a lot of states, Alaska, South Dakota, Nevada, um, uh, Delaware, which have a different rule. And you may recall, Mary, I wrote the first such statute, which was in Alaska in 1998. So uh, that's a good deal. But Mary, the special power of appointment trust, I create this trust, I have no interest, and the trustee can never give me any distribution from the trust. So I will have made a completed gift, I will have not retained an interest which is gonna cause inclusion under 2036 or 2037 or 2038, so I appear I'm golden. But what if I want that money, Mary? Well, what I've done is I've named three of my closest friends as non-fiduciaries holding lifetime special powers of appointment to appoint all or any portion of that property to any descendant of my mother. I am included in that class, but it's held by them in a non-fiduciary capacity, so it makes it immune from the claims of my creditors which means it should not be includable in my estate. And so if you have someone, either single or married, uh, married Mary, um, who wants to make a transfer but wants at least the possibility of getting it back, put in your three best friends as having a special power of appointment, which can be exercised in favor of any descendant of the grand tour's mother or grandmother, whatever you want. Now, what I also put in the trust, Mary, is I put in that the power of appointment, which is a non-fiduciary power, so you're not under Section 505 of the Uniform Trust Code, I say that they can exercise it only with the consent of my lawyer. So I hire you, Mary, to create this trust that I'm going to transfer property for my family. And I give Tom, Dick, and Harry these lifetime special powers of appointment. But if Tom wants to exercise it, for example, maybe Tom is mad at me. He says, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to really harm Jonathan by directing that I'm going to exercise his power in favor of Jonathan's brother, Doug. So Doug will get all the property and Jonathan won't. But he has to get a pass from you, Mary. And being my lawyer, I think there's a pretty good chance you're going to say no. I'm not going to let you exercise the power that way. Now, by the way, this is a rip-roaring, exciting idea called the Special Power of Appointment Trust, or a SPAC which I think will work to preserve the exemption entirely. I mean, maybe they'll come back and say, even that won't work in the final regs, although I don't think they're going to do that. And you can read all about that in an article by Abigail O'Connor, Mitchell Gans, and me in the February 2019 issue of Estate Planning Magazine. But I'm going to warn you, Mary, do not read that within an hour of your bedtime. It is so exciting, you'll never be able to sleep.
1: I have read the article, Jonathan. I <laughs> So I probably owe you a lot of thank you calls on that. But the other one is my other favorite is the uh, whole ing thing, right, which we're worried about a little bit right now. So is there anything else you want to add on this topic today, Jonathan?
2: Well, um, again, I think they probably are not going to make the rules much harsher. And I don't think there's a clear way around these. Again, the one that Seems most obvious to me is I do a trust and then I go to the trustee and I try to buy the assets back. But again, you've got to make sure it's going to be arm's length because if the trustee sells it all back to you for an AFR note, they're going to say basically you retain an interest interest 2036 applies. Number one, it may come back into your estate, but also they're going to say we're going to take back the exemption you used during your lifetime to the extent it exceeds what the exemption will be when you die.
1: Well thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Any last thoughts?
2: Walk forward and do good.
1: So as we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and the Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases.
0: Yeah. About any legal needs or questions you may have.
2: Ahura Media Production.